Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Uh, okay, good friends. We are in the book of Proverbs. We are in chapter 21. We're going to finish up uh, 21 and do a little bit into chapter 22. So you can go ahead and turn there. We looked at much of chapter 21 in our last, actually, parts of two studies. Uh, and so we're going to pick up today in verse 22. Let's pray. Father, we pray for wisdom uh, as we look into this book of wisdom. Lord, the ability to know. Lord, uh, your wisdom ultimately is a gift that our hearts are open to receive from you. And, and I pray, Lord, that that gift would be exercised today by each of us. Lord, that you would open up our hearts. Uh, you'd give us insight and understanding uh, to know these things. And even more significantly than knowing them, to be able to walk out of here uh, and apply these things uh, to our thinking and our actions and our responses and, and the like. And so minister through your holy word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Solomon begins in verse 22. He says, a wise man scales the city of the mighty and he brings down the stronghold in which they trust. Now, typically when a strong, mighty man goes uh, to battle against, say, some older fellow, the strong, mighty man is going to win. And certainly we know there is a place uh, for strength, brute strength. But according to Solomon here, Solomon says that wisdom far surpasses strength. He says brute force, heavy strongholds, that those are of no avail against superior wisdom. This is why a bunch of old guys can beat a bunch of young guys in a game of pickup basketball because old guys are smart and they're wily and they know how to work the system, so to speak. And this is why I challenge any of our young men standing over there to play against Mr. Mack. He'll take you in a game. It's also why we as followers of Christ ever want to be dependent on Christ and his wisdom to run the race of faith. And so the old guys, why do the old guys oftentimes beat the young guys and nobody can understand, like, how did that happen? It's because of their, you know, superior knowledge or experience of the game and they've been around a long time and, and so on and so forth. And it's the reason why in our run, running of the race with Christ, we don't want to do that in our own strength. But rather we want to do that in the wisdom, with dependence on him and in the wisdom that he gives us to run the race. I have tried for so long to run the Christian race in my own strength. I'm more determined, I'm going to do it, I'm going to get up early and I'm going to do these things and so on and so forth. And you always will come to the end of yourself, about a week, maybe two weeks if it was a really moving retreat, and then you always come to the end of yourselves and you come back to the Lord and say, Lord, I can't. And the Lord says, great, this is where I wanted you to begin with. Now come to me for strength. And so you return back to him for strength. And we know that in and of ourselves, in our own determination, in our own strength, we always come up short. Paul the Apostle experienced that. He's a good Christian, don't you think? Sure. He's a guy you can look to and admire and say, well, I want to have a walk like him. He said this, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Have you experienced that in your life? Okay, we all have, hopefully. And if you haven't, you will soon enough. That in me there is no good thing, and the desire to do what is right is there, but not the ability to carry it out. Because in our own strength, we will always come up short. And in his strength, however, as we seek to walk according to his leading, and we seek to walk according to the wisdom that he provides to us in his word and by the Holy Spirit, that's the place of victory. 
And so the word of wisdom then is walk in that victory. Walk in wisdom, not in your own strength. Verse 23 says, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Amen, right? <laughs> now, he says, whoever keeps his mouth, whoever keeps his tongue, there's really no difference in what Solomon is trying to communicate between the mouth and the tongue. So don't parse it too much here. Both of them are speaking here, as they have elsewhere in the book, of the words that we allow to come out of our mouths. Solomon says, whoever can control the words that come out of their mouths keeps himself from a lot of trouble. That's it. You save yourself a lot of difficulty just by being careful with the words that you allow to come out of your mouth. And so think about the ways we allow our in which our mouths get us into trouble by the words we allow to come out. We talk back to the police officer and we go way too far over the line. And suddenly that routine little traffic stop, we end up finding ourselves in the clink for the night because our mouths have got us into trouble. We snap back at our moms or our dads and now we find ourselves grounded when it wasn't that significant to begin with. We give a smart retort at work and now we find ourselves at odds with the boss. We say something hurtful, and we find our relationship with another person is damaged. And all of those instances are because we allowed our mouths to be unguarded and our tongues to move freely. I've referenced it many times, because uh, Proverbs references it many times, and that is the tongue. And James describes in the New Testament the tongue as a small, tiny little part of the body. It's a small, little, time, tiny part of our body, and yet it gets us into so much trouble. He says, uh, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. It doesn't take much. I was a kid, and I was playing with a lighter in the woods, and there was some yellow grass there, and I was just curious. I wonder what will happen if you light the yellow grass on fire. And the next thing you know, whoosh, it goes flush. Uh, yeah. It went all the way down, and now there's this whole patch until it hit like green grass again. And I was very scared, or whatever. But just a small little flame of my Bic lighter set so much of that grass there, and potentially you could set a whole forest on fire. Just a spark, and a forest could be ablaze. And even so, with just a word, big trouble oftentimes follows. I mean, how many times after the fact have you looked back and said to yourself, why did I ever say that? Why did I say that? Or, boy, I wish I had never said that particular thing. And the problem is, once those words are out there, you can't take them back as much as you wish that you could. How much better instead than to carefully guard the words we allow to get out there? You're better off shutting your mouth and walking away and somebody yelling at you, don't walk away from me. You're better off with that scenario than to just give it, ah, just let it all out. Because once those words are out there, they stick. The one who walks away, walks in wisdom, uh, walks away, carefully guards their mouths. And now, sometimes you feel, well, I got to get it out. If I don't get it out, I'll burst. You ever felt like that? It, it's like this anger. Sometimes, man, I've heard people, not me, I've heard other people, where, where it, all the heat of, their, of the universe just sort of rises up into their head, and they're just going to kill somebody or something or whatever. Yes, I, I don't know, I'm, you have a problem apparently, um, <laughs> whatever. All right, but you're just so, you're seething and you feel like, well, I'll just hold it in, I'll just hold it in, but then it just feels like it's gonna kick the doors down. That's not a mouth problem, right? 
We've said this a number of times. That's a heart problem because out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And so it's in those instances where you're really trying to control yourself, you're really trying to be good and put a guard over your mouth and it feels like it just has to come out of you there. That's the instance you have to realize this is more than a mouth problem. This is more than can I hold it back here. This is a heart problem. And that's where in that instance you have to go to prayer. Or, and I should say, next time you go back to your prayer closet where you have your real prayer times, you know what I'm talking about? So you do the quick prayers, you know, that you're in the middle of life having. But then there's those times, almost like Paul, where you say, Lord, remove this thorn. There's those times we say, Paul, Lord, this is for real. I'm bringing this to you. I don't want this in my life. Reveal this to me. So whether you're on the run praying or you're in your prayer closet praying, it's a good time to remind yourself of that truth that out of the mouth, the heart speaks. I got a heart problem. And the only one that can really change a heart, going back to the previous verse, is not ourselves. It's not our own wisdom, it's not our own strength, it's not our own determination, but it's God changing us from the inside out. And so then now this issue, this mouth problem of yours, becomes a matter of prayer. And you're bringing it to the Lord. And the Lord changes us in the process of time. And that is good news. The more we submit ourselves to him, as we submit ourselves to him, he begins to change us. And suddenly we have those same circumstances and we realize the, the kicking down of the door isn't as intense as it had been in previous times. And God is changing you. And that's good news indeed. Amen? So make it a matter of the heart and bring it to the Lord. Verse 24 says, Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. If I were to ask you, what's one of the key words of the book of Proverbs? What's a key idea? My wife and I were doing this recently of the book of Proverbs. Things that just seem to come up again and again, either in the positive form or in the negative form. I'd have to imagine many of us would say scoffer or scorner, depending on the version you're reading, because we've seen it a number of times here. It's the 14th time already. Here we are in chapter 21. Um, So once every two chapters or chapter and a half, it pops up there, this word scoffer. It'll appear 17 times in the book. And a scoffer, you may recall, is the person who mocks at knowledge. Not knowledge in general, but being informed of knowledge here. This is a person that is a know-it-all, that doesn't need anyone to tell them anything. That's a scoffer. They're the one that would rather get something wrong than have to admit that somebody else is right. The scoffer is the one that is set in their ways and refuses to be moved from those ways. And here now in verse 24, Solomon reminds us of why the scoffer is a scoffer. And that is because of their arrogance and their pride. So again, he says it's the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Now, of course, in the Bible, when it it refers to the name, that's referencing what the person is, their character. And so this person is called a scoffer because this man is a scoffer. And he is a scoffer because of his pride and his arrogance and his haughty spirit. Who you are in your heart will always manifest itself in your life. And there's just no way around that truth. A person can only fake it for so long. Then who they really are comes out. And so if you are proud and haughty, it won't take very long for others to think of you as proud and haughty. And the solution is not so much to change your behavior, though that is a start. That's really the first start where you, you change your behavior, but it's, that's not the solution. 
The solution, again, is to allow God to change your heart, to change you from the inside out. And when you do that and you allow God to root out the pride of your heart, before long, you and others begin noticing that. And rather than referring to you now as a scoffer, they begin to see you as a man or a woman of humility. Or, man, that's a good guy. Or, that guy always seems to be thinking about other people and not themselves, and so on and so forth. And so as God roots it out of your heart, people begin to take notice of that. You'll begin to take notice of that. So again, we bring our heart to the Lord. Verses 25 and 26 we'll take together. It says this. I'm sorry. It says, The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to do labor. All day long he craves and he craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. If we were to choose words that appear a lot of times, sluggard is another one of those words we see a number of times in the book of Proverbs. And here I find it interesting, Solomon contrasts the lazy sluggard with the righteous person. So don't miss that. Solomon equates laziness with unrighteousness. Now that surprises me a little bit. Oftentimes if I think of unrighteousness, I think of sort of gross sins that everybody would say, yeah, that's a sin. But I don't think about laziness so much in that light here, but Solomon does. And he equates actually unrighteousness with laziness. Therefore, uh, since unrighteousness is sin, laziness then is sin. Excessive laziness is destructive to a society and most certainly to an individual or to that individual's family, or those that are depending on that individual. Solomon says here that uh, sluggardliness, laziness, that it kills a man. And it does so because the individual, that man there, refuses to labor. They're lazy. I'm too tired. It's too hard. This is boring. I don't want to do this. Why are we doing this anyway? It doesn't make any sense. The natural order of things in society is for people uh, that are able to work to get up and work. That's the natural order of things. Get up and go do something. That's how the Lord provides, by us going out. So what could he have done with uh, Adam? You know, hey, every night, 5 o'clock, show up. Boy, I'm going to have a meal ready for you. It'll be out there and you'll enjoy it. No, he said, Adam, till the ground. And then bring your food home, and you and your wife, you'll cook it up, and you'll have a fantastic meal. You see, the Lord, the natural order of things is that we get out and we do it. And so we get up, we work, and then one week later, the paycheck arrives, or two weeks or a month later, whatever, and then the person goes to the store and they purchase the things they need and maybe even they splurge on an item here or there. That's the natural order of things. That's how God designed it to work. What does a lazy man do, though? Notice it says there in verse 26, all day long he craves and he craves. And so though the lazy man refuses to labor, their heart doesn't refuse to covet, now does it? They refuse to get up and do it, but their heart continues to covet after these things. They crave, and they crave, it says, the world's riches, but they refuse to do the hard work to acquire those riches. And it seems, the context seems to be that they expect that everybody else will do for them that which they're unwilling to do for themselves. But if you notice the contrast, the righteous man, on the other hand, rather than expecting that everyone should do for them or give to them, notice what it says there, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. 
So rather than expecting everybody is going to do for me, that which I don't want to do for myself, they go out and do, they begin to acquire, and then they turn around and generously give that to others. And that's the contrast that Solomon draws between the two. The lazy man here looks what he, for what he can take, but the righteous man looks for what he can give. The righteous and the industrious man or woman, notice, has not only their own desires satisfied, but now there's this increased desire to be a blessing to others. And that becomes a greater desire of theirs and the blessing of the life that they're living. The lazy man spends his time in a dream world. Unfulfilled cravings. I'm not willing to work for anything, but I want everything. It's a dream world. While the righteous man works hard, earns money, and then looks for ways to generously give those resources of way. So let me ask you this. Which of those would you say your life more closely resembles? Which of those would you say your life more closely resembles? And then ask yourself this second question, are you content with that resemblance? Make it a matter that you bring to the Lord. Verse 27, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? Now, another word that appears many times in uh, the book of Proverbs is the word abomination things that are an abomination to the Lord. This is now the 16th time in the book that Solomon has pronounced something to be an abomination before the Lord. And he'll go on and he'll announce three more things. So almost 20 times in the book of Proverbs, he'll address something as an abomination to the Lord. Here he pronounces or announces that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. And you should know that word sacrifice specifically refers to a religious sacrifice. And so here's a person bringing their religious sacrifice to the Lord, a wicked person bringing their religious sacrifice to the Lord, and it's referred to as an abomination to the Lord. Solomon said as much back in chapter 15 in verse 8 when he called the sacrifice of the wicked an abomination. So here now in chapter 21, he adds, in addition to the sacrifice of the wicked being an abomination, he adds to that idea how much more when it is given with wicked intent. So you're just a nice wicked person. You don't have any evil desires. And you want to bring your religious offering to the Lord. That's called an abomination to the Lord. Now you're a conniving wicked person and you're trying to, with evil intent, bring your religious practice to the Lord. How much more of an abomination would that be? Do you see where I'm going with that, where I believe Solomon is going with that? He addresses this idea of bringing it with evil intent. Now for a lot of us, we hear, well, wait a minute. Somebody's bringing a religious sacrifice. They're an unbeliever. Apparently something's going on in their heart there. It surprises us to hear that the Lord would despise such a thing. We're tempted to think, well, shouldn't God just be sort of satisfied that the unrighteous person is bringing something? At least they're trying or something. We're tempted to kind of look at it in that particular perspective. It serves then, and it should serve then, as a reminder to us of the worthlessness of ritual, ritual without reality. Just because we go through the motions and do these religious practices does not mean a person is in right place with God. A person, this is a bold statement, but I believe it's in the word of God. A person's sacrifice means nothing to God when the person's heart continues to remain alienated from God. 
And again, it's a bold statement, and I'm careful with the words that I say. A person's sacrifice means nothing to God when the person's heart continues to remain alienated from God. And so if your way is given over to wickedness, your sacrifice is nothing but a farce. And the Lord sees right through it. I quoted this earlier in our study of Proverbs, but this is what the Lord says to the prophet Isaiah. It should go up on the screen. He says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I'm full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of the he goats, or of the goats, I should say. So the context then of the passage, it makes it clear that here are people, their lives and their worship were not lining up with one another. And it's as if the Lord there is saying, look, if I have to choose between your acts of worship and no worship but your life, I want your life. That's what the Lord is saying. I want your life here. And in truth, we can see that. We know that with New Testament eyes. We read in the book of Romans where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship some versions word it, or your spiritual worship. There was only one sacrifice that the Lord will accept, and that is the sacrifice of his own dear son, Jesus Christ. That's the sacrifice that the wicked person must come to God with, and that alone is the sacrifice that will bring that person pardon. And then any good deeds or any sacrifices after that that we give to the Lord, we give in response to the great sacrifice that has already been provided for us. Not to win God's favor, but in response for the favor that we have because his son won us God's favor. And all other acts of righteousness, all other good deeds are viewed, again to quote Isaiah a little bit later in in his book, as filthy rags. Anything else, unless we come to him first through his son Jesus Christ, is looked at as filthy rags. Now, if a person then gives a sacrifice to God with no evil intent, but still remain in their wickedness, if that's an abomination, imagine when a person is trying to bribe God or manipulate God or get God to owe them. God, you owe me. You got to bless me. I went to church. That guy went on and on for like an hour. I, I think I deserve some blessing from you from that. Lord, I threw some money into the offering. Lord, I brought my sacrifices. Now you owe me. And it's as if you're saying, Lord, you can look past this whole give my life to you thing because I brought you my sacrifice. And again, the Lord's saying, I'm more interested in your life than I am your sacrifices. (sighs) Thank you. (laughs) The sacrifice of the sinner will ever be detestable and unacceptable in the eyes of God, but especially when it's designed to mask hypocrisy. God God is turned off by the gifts of unrepentant sinners. And if they're given to persuade him to condone or approve a wicked lifestyle, he's turned off even more so. And so when sacrifices are brought by wicked men who have not repented of their sins, put to death their sinful desires, and then submitted themselves to God to change their lives, then those sacrifices are an abomination. It is easy to bring a sacrifice to the Lord, isn't it? It's a whole lot easier to bring a sacrifice to the Lord than to bring our whole lives to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm yours. Do in me what you want 
to do in me. And that's the sacrifice that the Lord desires. Amen? Amen. All right, verse 28. Excuse me. It says, A false witness will perish, but the word of a man who hears will endure. Now, the King James Version writes this a little bit differently. Uh, and just a sort of a cursory look, it could leave you with a different impression of what is trying to be communicated. So I think it's important to look at it. I know that many of us here read the King James. The King James says, A false witness shall perish, but the man that heareth speaketh constantly. That seems a little bit odd, because Solomon has told us earlier that the person who won't shut up is the fool. And so in the King James, it says it seems to be commending the person that speak, speaks constantly. The idea that Solomon is communicating in this verse is not that the man, it's not to commend the man that speaks constantly or won't shut up. Solomon's already pointed out that that is the way of the fool. What he's referring to when he says speaks constantly, he's referring to the idea of speaks consistently. Consistently, constantly, regularly. This is an individual that speaks the truth. Their story isn't going to change to fit the circumstances because the truth is the truth. And so that's what they communicate. And so they communicate that consistently, constantly, without change. This is the person that what they say you can trust because what they say is. And so the person who speaks the truth here. The word of a faithful witness then will endure, to go back to the English Standard Version, because people can trust the word of a faithful witness. Now, the word of a false witness that Solomon references, that falls apart. With just a little bit of cross-examination, where you just begin to ask some questions, that word can't stand. Solomon says it will perish because it has no foundation upon which to stand. The faithful witness, on the other hand, this is the one people seek to hear from because they know what they are hearing is information that is worth hearing. And it's information that is rooted upon the foundation of truth. The way of wisdom, if you want to walk in wisdom in your life, then you have to be a truthful person because the way of wisdom is the way of truth. And again, in our own wisdom, we might convince ourselves that a little lie here, a little lie over there, it'll help us to get ahead It'll help us to get off easy. What Solomon has been communicating to us is the exact opposite is true. And if you try and lie your way out of a particular circumstance, thinking that's the easy way, or in your own wisdom think that that's a way that you can get by on this instance or that instance there, the truth will make itself known. And the path will be even more difficult later on. The sure and secure way is the way of truth. That is the way that endures. Verse 29 says, that a wicked man puts on a bold face, but the upright gives thought to his ways. A wicked man puts on a bold face. Now Solomon's point here is to point is to again contrast the wicked with the righteous, or the wicked person with the upright individual. So he says that the wicked individual puts on a bold face. And the idea there is that they set their face like a stone, and I am moving forward regardless of the information that might be present to suggest otherwise. This is where I'm going, and nobody can tell me differently. And so this person is stubborn. They're inflexible. They made up their mind, and they won't be dissuaded. They have, like the popular Frank Sinatra song, they decided to do it their way, you know the song, regardless of whether that way is good or not. 
Now, with all due respect to Frank Sinatra, I would suggest to you Frank Sinatra was mistaken. Because doing things our way, simply because it is our way, is not the way to go. Conversely, notice here the upright, notice about them, they give thought to their ways. They're flexible. They give thought to their ways. They process things, as we've been talking about. They learn from their mistakes and the mistakes of other people. They go in a different direction if wisdom reveals that a different direction would be in their best interest. The wicked man, again, though, in contrast, hardens his heart to truth and thus remains in their folly, whereas the wise individual lays down their pride, gives thought to their ways, and walks in humility. And that's the person that grows in wisdom and walks in that wisdom. And so don't ever sing that song, I did it my way. It's evil. I'm kidding. Sorry, Christian. Yes, he just won an award for singing that song, and he did a wonderful job with that devil song. Um, Just kidding, yes. Verse 30. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. No one can ever outwit God. Nobody can ever devise a set of ways that will contradict God and his word or that will be superior to God and his words. Nobody can ever outwit God. And so I think of those that poo-poo the Bible. Poo-poo. It was the word that came to mind when I was writing. But I think of those that, you know, they they kind of mock the Bible, they laugh at the Bible, they they pat you on your, your little head because you believe the Bible. They see it as some antiquated book with antiquated teachings that are inferior to the advanced civilized thinking of the 21st century. Those individuals set themselves up for a fall. And I don't have to fight with you. I don't have to argue with you. I just have to wait. And soon enough, you'll come to a fall. Because if you set yourself up against God and his ways, then you're trying to outwit the Lord. And you can't. Nobody can. As the verse says again, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. More specifically, you think of those that set themselves up in opposition to God's thinking, somehow thinking that they can pull one over on the Lord. Those individuals are in for a rude awakening. Again, man is powerless to outwit God, and none of his plots will ever or can ever avail against the Lord. Nothing avails against the Lord. And those that fight against him are preparing for themselves nothing but shame and ruin. And I think about those in the world, and we live in a world with intense persecution of believers around the world. Sometimes here in America, you know, people mock me when I prayed at lunch, the persecution my friends, that's not really persecution, all right? It, it feels bad and it hurts your heart and all that stuff. And come here, I'll give you a little hug and encourage you. But the reality is there are brothers and sisters around the world that are experiencing persecution. And people are being, being put to death for their faith. People are having their heads chopped off for their faith. People are being crucified for their faith. And they're being run out of cities and run out of their jobs and separated from their families unless they convert. People have set themselves up to fight against God's people. And so specifically here, I have the systematic persecution of saints around the world. And those that have set themselves up against God's people, they will, as many hearts have before them, discover that to those that love the Lord, all things work together for good. You cannot outwit the Lord. And that the Lord will even use those horrible circumstances to accomplish his purposes. 
And again, through history, you look at where persecution is the most intense in the world, often the gospel's advancing greater than it ever has in that part of the world, in those areas of persecution. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel will or can ever avail against the Lord. And may that be an encouragement to each of our hearts as we seek to walk with him. Verse 31, it says, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Now, in the last verse, we learned that nothing avails against God. Here, we learn that nothing avails without God. Solomon makes it clear in this verse that man is required to do their part. You are required to do your part. Notice it says, the horse is made ready for the day of battle. Who makes the horse ready? It's the man. And so he goes out. I don't know what you do to make a horse ready, but come on, buddy. <laughs> you can do it or whatever. But he goes out there and he encourages the horse and he gives him its food or whatever it may be. But the man has to do his part. The horse is made ready for the day of battle. But whether or not the victory comes is in the hands of the Lord. The rest of the verse goes on to say, God can work without us. But the normal order of things is, to God, is for God to work through us. Right? right? Am I crazy? That's the normal order of things. And so we then, we ready ourselves for battle. And so this is why the group that's going down to Ocean City, they're going to gather together three or four times or whatever it may be to prepare themselves. They're readying themselves for battle. But it's always a mistake. You go out onto the boardwalk or the streets or whatever to evangelize, and you're going to win those fights with the superiority of your intellect? Good luck. Alrighty? Even if you do win those particular fights, no hearts are going to be won. It's the Lord taking your preparation and applying it to the hearts of your listeners. And so we may ready ourselves for battle, but the victory comes in the hands of the Lord. And so we must ever be mindful then that it's not the number of people that we can assemble. So we could get, you know, the two, three hundred of us here and we could take over the boardwalks for Jesus or whatever. And we can just uh, overwhelm the boardwalk there. Not going to do it. And it's not going to be, it's not going to work. We have to ever be mindful. It's not the number of people we can assemble. It's not how big our budget is. If I just have a little more money, you know, we can accomplish these particular things. It's not the amount of resources that we have at our disposal that ultimately brings success. Because you can have all of those things and the Lord not be in something. And if the Lord is not in a particular thing, it doesn't matter how many horses you have assembled or how big your budget is or what amount of resources you have because there can never be success without the Lord. And therefore, as his followers, we must ever be dependent on him and go forward with dependence. Amen? Make sense? All right, let's go on to verse 20, chapter 22, a couple verses today. It says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Very bad habit that we have developed in our culture is to instinctively value a person based upon their wealth. And so we even ask ourselves, well, how much is so-and-so worth? As if, well, what's that matter? Because we value the person based on what they have. And so if they have a big bank account, then we refer to them as a great individual or as a great person. And Solomon reminds us here of the great mistake of doing that. Notice what Solomon says. He says that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and that favor with others is better than silver or gold, or any other form of wealth a society might run after. Now, there are a lot of things that are better than silver and gold. Relationships are better than silver and gold. Peace 
is better than silver and gold. And Solomon now tells us here that a good name is better than silver or gold. Far to be preferred to earthly treasure are those things that I just mentioned. And yet too often, those are the very things we forfeit to obtain the other. And so we forfeit relationships to obtain money. We forfeit peace in a relationship and we war against another to obtain money. Or we forfeit our good name and our reputation so that we might uh, obtain money. And how often we and others are willing to do that. Sacrifice our integrity, sacrifice our reputation so that our bank account might grow just a little bit. Our integrity should rank higher in our hearts and mind than riches in the estimation of ourselves and of others. Having the respect of our neighbors for who we are should always come before seeking to be respected for what we have. And that's the idea that Solomon is seeking to communicate. That's the idea there of that word favor. Some versions say loving favor that indicates the sweetness of being esteemed and loved by one's neighbors. That a good reputation, we know that that is the fruit of honest and consistent character. And a good character, people esteem. And that's the favor that he's speaking of, the satisfaction of being a person that people can look at and see that that is an honest and consistent individual. That's the sort of wealth that the wise man will run after. And Solomon commends in this verse. Verse 2, it says, The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. Why should character matter more than wealth? Because when all is said and done, we all end up in the exact same place. So why should character matter more than wealth? Because when all is said and done, the dead person is the same whether they were rich on the earth or poor on the earth. All of our bodies end up in the grave, but all of our souls end up in the presence of our maker. That's the same place we really end up. The rich and the poor meet together in that place. And in that place, the size of your bank account won't mean a thing. There is a pernicious doctrine. It, it just makes me mad. And it is so prevalent in the American church, and it seems to camp on the TBN channel. And it equates poverty with sin and God's displeasure. The idea that is if a person is poor, if they would just get their life a little bit better right with the Lord, then they would be able to experience his blessing and have a bigger bank account. The Bible doesn't teach that, and it just isn't true. Poverty is not an indicator of sin. You know, it's interesting to take note that Jesus was poor when he walked here on the earth, and his parents were poor before him when he walked here on the earth. Poverty is not an indicator of sin. And the poor aren't necessarily more blessed than the rich, but neither are they more cursed than the rich. Blessing and cursing, wealth and poverty, they don't have anything to do with one another necessarily. Now expand this out, rich and poor, black and white, Republican and Democrat, we're all of the same human family. And all of us come from the same creator. Every one of us is the offspring of the same individual, Adam, and Noah after him. Every one of us. We're brothers. Give me a hug. All right? <laughs> Invite me to dinner. And any class distinctions that survive in this life are immediately abolished in the next. As the scripture says, as the, you, know, you, you heard the, at funerals, unto dust both shall return. And then both 
shall meet at the judgment seat of Christ. And so the greatest, most successful man in the world must acknowledge God as his, to be his maker and is under the same obligations to be subject to him that the poorest and most humble a man or woman is as well. And that's a very helpful, valuable reminder. If you're among the greatest among us in our society, you need to be reminded of that truth. And it's a valuable reminder for the poorest and most humble that are among us as well. The rich learn humility from a verse like this. The poor can learn contentment from a verse like this. All of humanity is equal at the foot of the cross and at the judgment seat of Christ. Nobody is better and no one is lesser. And to quote our friend Matthew Henry, he said this, There is the same heaven for poor saints that there is for rich. And there is the same hell for rich sinners that there is for poor. All stand upon the same level before the Lord. And may the Lord burn that truth into our hearts. Verse 3, it says, The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Now Solomon will say the same thing in chapter 27. And so we'll see it again in our study of the book. One paraphrase that I came across for this verse, it said this, The thoughtless pass on in their folly, and they pay for it. According to Solomon here, the prudent man, the wise man or woman, foresees danger. The Hebrew says evil, and some versions say that as well. So the prudent man foresees evil, and he flees from that evil, or he flees from that, uh, that danger. The wise individual does not stick around to see if he can handle it. Remember that movie? It was a cartoon. Who can handle it? What was that movie? Incredibles. Who can handle it? Not you. You can't. None of us can. And the prudent man sees that danger and recognizes that truth. And they get themselves out of there. They don't play with evil. They don't play with danger. They don't dabble with it. They don't see how close they can get to it. Rather, they run from it. And in that running, they reveal their wisdom. That's the wise individual. Now, the fool, on the other hand, sees the same danger and keeps moving forward toward it. Now, why would you do that? Stop. Hide yourself if need be. Don't suffer needlessly. Now, certainly this is important as it pertains to earthly matters. The danger uh, connected with our finances, our relationships, matters of purity. So certainly to our earthly matters this pertains. But of supreme importance is how it pertains to heavenly matters. Because all of humanity is rapidly moving toward the end of their days. I can't believe that I'm almost 47 years old. In my mind, like play softball, I feel like I'm 15 or something. And then I get hurt. And I realize I'm not 15 anymore. I can't believe how fast life is going. And some of you that are younger, like, it takes too long to get my license or whatever. Soon enough, man, downhill. Woo! And it, it's moving. But all of humanity is rapidly moving toward the end of their days. In truth, all of humanity will not be ready for the end of their days. Despite the fact that the Lord has made a way for all of us to be ready, sadly, there are many, and, and perhaps you could even say most, that live on the earth, that will come to the end of their days and not be ready for what lies on the other side. And for most, danger lies on the other side of the grave. Judgment 
lies on the other side of the grave. And yet we know from the word of God it does not have to. William Arnault, he said this, although the saved are not their own saviors, the lost are their own destroyers. If you are lost while another is saved, it's not because your guilt is greater than his, but because you neglected the salvation which he deemed to be precious. And there is a refuge that every one of us can run to. And that refuge can be only be accessed on this side of eternity. After that, to quote or to reference the account of the rich man and Lazarus in the New Testament, after that, a great chasm is fixed so that those who would pass from this side to that side can't and those who would pass from that side to this side can't. Contrary to contemporary thought, the Bible teaches that both heaven and hell are real. It's so interesting to read the, um, the polling and things that are out there of how many people are ready to embrace heaven and then reject hell. Well, why are you so ready to embrace heaven? Because the same Bible teaches that both of those two places exist. It seems to me people are picking and choosing the things that they want to believe. The Bible teaches, and contrary to contemporary thought, that both heaven and hell are real places and that every person will spend eternity in one of those two places. And it's the wise individual, the prudent individuals that sees the reality of that fact and hides themselves in the refuge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may I just encourage, I don't know where all of you are in your walks with the Lord, but my prayer is that every one of us that hears this message, reads the word of God, hides himself in the Lord Jesus. And if you haven't done that, you can do so today. Verse 4 says, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. We know that where the fear of the Lord is, there's humility. If you rightfully fear the Lord, you cannot walk in pride before him and other people. And when we walk in all of God and in humility before those that are around us, the result then is a rich and honorable life. That's the type of life Solomon has been telling us that the Lord sees, that the Lord blesses, and we've all experienced it. It's the type of life others around bless as well, honor as well. They see it. And it all begins with a right understanding of who God is and who we are in his sight. Verse 5, thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked, and whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. The Lord has given us a way to walk, and he has done so for our good. The Lord has given us a way to walk, and he has done so for our good. In the way of sin, the way of the crooked, as it's described here, in that way there are thorns, and there are snares. Now, thorns, I would suggest to you, would be the difficulties and the pain that come from past or present sin. And so sin brings with it its prickly thorns. And it's painful, those thorns are. And whether it's past experiences that continue with us, and we got to deal with that pain, or it's present sin that we're involved with and the sin that it brings us uh, into our lives, those messes that we have gotten ourselves into are because of the crooked way that we decided to go. He also talks here about the snares. I would suggest to you the snares are those things that either trip us up or will in the future trip us up and cause us to fall. And the Lord's desire is to keep us from these things. I want to keep you from the pain and I want to keep you from falling. I want good for you. The way of wisdom 
is good for us. And he wants to keep us from those things and the pain that comes from those decisions that we make. All kinds of difficulties and trouble lie in the way of the perverse man. And so as he says here, the one who guards his soul avoids those things, will keep far from those things. Jesus says, I want good for you. If only we would let him shower his goodness on us. Amen? And it's the wise individual then that keeps himself from the crooked way, guards their soul, keeps themselves from the thorns and the snares of that way. And may that be said of each of us. Amen? We will stop there today. We'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, uh, even now, we thank you for your heart. Lord, your heart for us in particular uh, comes to mind. That you love us. You want good for us. You've given us a way to walk in that we might experience that good and the blessing of uh, your life, uh, your light shining down on our hearts and commending uh, the ways in which we seek to walk. Lord, we thank you that you have made a way for wicked men such as us to have new hearts created within us through the sacrifice of your son and his righteousness laid upon our hearts. And so, Father, I do pray for uh, each person here, Lord, that you would bless them this coming week, or that you would burn in their hearts a desire to know you and to walk with you. Would you give them a hunger for the sweetness of fellowship with others. Lord, you'd reveal areas of their hearts that may uh, continue to be far from you. And Lord, you'd bring them to the place in their thinking where they come to the end of themselves and they lay it down before you and they say, Lord, I want you to change me to be more like your son. Lord, bless this congregation. Bless each of us individually, we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Sermon Podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.